0: So we're gonna look at Psalm 19 today, and it's a psalm I'm sure most of us are familiar with. Um, And as we work through the psalm, we're gonna see um, some poetic devices, including parallelism and personification, uh, among others. We'll also see how this psalm depicts Christ as his role as creator, in his identity as the word of God, and in his act of redemption at the cross. And we'll see how this psalm evokes the emotions of awe, thankfulness, and the fear of the Lord. Psalm 19 depicts three increasingly specific ways that God's glory is displayed in His creation, in His word, and in His redemption. Let's pray, and then I'll read Psalm 19 before we dive into the different sections more intently. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would show us your glory in it and cause it to transform us into the likeness of your Son by the power of your Spirit within us. Please use my words to proclaim your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the first display of God's glory in this psalm is in his creation in verses 1 through 6. Here, David has artfully used both parallelism and personification to describe God's creation and how it displays God's glory. He specifically focuses on the sky, using the terms heaven, sky above, day, night, and the sun. He says in verse one that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Ryan referenced this verse a couple weeks ago as we looked at Ephesians 2.10 where Paul says that we are God's handiwork, his finger play. But here, David says that the heavens are declaring something. The sky above is proclaiming something. Now, the sky does not actually speak. David's using personification to describe how simply observing the sky reveals something profound about the one who made the sky. I was camping a couple of weeks ago, and I noticed some things about the sky. I stayed up late one night and sat back in my camping chair and just looked up at all the stars. And as I thought about the immensity of each of those stars and how far away they are, I felt very small and powerless. And as I thought about the one who made those stars, I felt that he was unimaginably big and powerful. Another thing I noticed was that I didn't have a watch with me, but I knew when to wake up because the sky got brighter. And I knew when to start a campfire because the sky would get dark. This same pattern happened every single day. And it has happened every day since God created the world. And it will continue to happen until the new heavens and new earth, when there's no more sun or moon, because God himself will be our light. Now verse 2 talks about constant the, the constant pattern of the sky. As David says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Not only does the sky reveal how powerful God is, it also reveals how faithful He is. The second verse of the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, says, Summer and winter, and springtime and harvest sun, moon, and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Day after day and night after night, the sun, moon, and stars follow a consistent pattern such that we can anticipate their movement with incredible accuracy. The stars are so constant That sailors can navigate the sea by them, where there's otherwise no point of reference to know which direction they're going at night. The moon is so constant that the Jewish calendar was based on its cycle. The sun is so constant that we can know the timing of the sunrise and the sunset anywhere on the globe at any day of the year. The seasons are so constant that farmers know to the day when to plant and when to harvest. Now, if the sky is so constant, then the one who made it is even more so in his character. If the sky is so useful to all of mankind, then the one who made it is infinitely merciful and loving to bless us with it. The sky declares and proclaims all these things, but have you ever heard the sky? I haven't literally heard the sky, and David picks up on this in verse three. He says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I'm gonna give a little little grammar lesson here. In Hebrew, it doesn't have that relative pronoun, whose. It simply speaks of the sky not having literal speech or literal voice to be heard. There is no speech. There's no words. Their voice, it isn't heard. It's not literally heard. Now, even though the sky doesn't have a literal voice, in verse four, David says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, the word for voice back in verse three is a literal voice, like what you're hearing coming out of my mouth right now. But here in verse four, David uses a different word that elsewhere is translated as a measuring line, as if the sky declares God's sovereignty over creation, such that he dictates where everything goes. This is a metaphorical proclamation of God's eternal power and divine nature, as Paul explains in Romans 1, 18 through 20. Let's turn over there really quick, just to see how Paul makes a similar argument. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, says, For the wrath of God that have been made, so they are without excuse. God's creation is sufficient evidence to know that there is an eternal and divine creator, and the only reason people don't acknowledge this is that they suppress it. People don't want a creator to whom they're accountable for their actions. Our sinful state, is such that we desire life on our terms rather than on God's terms, so we suppress the truth. Paul takes this point and applies it to Israel in chapter 10 of Romans. He quotes Psalm 19 verse four in Romans ten eighteen in the context of Israel hearing the gospel and yet rejecting it. In Psalm 19, David is speaking of the metaphorical proclamation of the sky that there is a creator, God, who is all-powerful, faithful, merciful, and eternal. And in Romans 10, Paul quotes these words to refer to the specific proclamation of the gospel. God's glory, as proclaimed by the sky, directs us to his glory as proclaimed in the gospel. In God's love and mercy, he gave us evidence of his eternal power and divine nature in the world around us. And he did this so that we would long to know him more, having caught a glimpse of his glory. All of mankind is without excuse for our sin because the evidence of God is clearly perceived in the world around us. Likewise, Israel is without excuse for rejecting the gospel, which was prophesied in scripture, hinted at in creation and fully articulated in Jesus Christ. Let's turn back to Psalm 19 now. David wraps up the first section of God's glory in his creation by describing the specific pattern of the sun. From the end of verse four, through verse six, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. God set a tent in the heavens for the sun. That means that the sky is the sun's God given dwelling place. Now, how does the sun come out of that tent like a bridegroom leaving his chamber? Now, a bridegroom almost glows after having been with his new wife, and he is so joyful, it's as if everything is right in the world. So, too, the sun glows in joyful obedience to the Creator. And how does the sun resemble a strong man running? Well, the strong man thinks nothing of the course He's, he is to run. Where the weak man is worried about the difficulty of the course, the strong man's joyful at the opportunity to run. God has given something as powerful as the sun, a specific dwelling place, and a specific job to do. And that powerful sun rejoices To obey the Creator. Now, we know that the sun does not revolve around the earth, right? So, in verse 6, when David says that the sun's circuit is from the end of the heavens to the other end, he's speaking poetically rather than precisely. We know that the apparent movement of the sun is due to the earth's rotation, but we still call it a sunset and a sunrise. Nobody says, oh, what a beautiful earth rotation. (laughs) So the point David is making is that the consistency and power of the sun is evidence to all who perceive the sun's light and heat that there is a creator who is more powerful and more constant God's glory is unmistakable in his creation, and it's enough to condemn those who suppress the truth that it proclaims. But God's creation was never intended to reveal all of what God wants us to know about him. And it's not enough to grant saving faith. Creation is an appetizer to make us want more of God's glory and to seek, him, to, to seek to know him more through his word. It should cause us to consider who he is and what he wants us to do and be. And the answer to those questions are found in his word. So we looked at David's first de- depiction of God's glory in creation, and now we'll look at the second depiction of God's glory in his word in verses seven through 11. As awesome as God's creation is in revealing his eternal nature and divine glory, his word is even more glorious as it more clearly reveals who God is and what he has done and what we should do in response More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Now verses 7 through 9 follow a pattern, displaying an aspect of God's special revelation, followed by a descriptor of that aspect, and ending with an action that particular aspect of God's word performs in the life of the believer. It's a very specific pattern and you can hear it as you read through it but then in verses 10 and 11 it shows the surpassing worth of god's word let's look a little closer at the pattern in verses seven through nine verse seven starts out describing the law of the lord this was a common designation for the scriptures which was at that time the first five books of the old testament The Hebrew Bible later added the prophets and the writings, and then after Jesus the Messiah came and died and rose again, we got the New Testament. But here David's referring to Genesis through Deuteronomy. David says that these scriptures are perfect. The word he used means blameless, without fault, or complete. You can't find anything wrong with God's word. David also says that the law of the Lord revives the soul. Now, how can the law of the Lord revive the soul? Not too long ago, we went through the book of Galatians, and Paul said something quite different about the law in Galatians, didn't he? Galatians 3, 21 and 22 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly Not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul implies here that God's laws cannot give life. So how is it that David says that the law of the Lord revives the soul or gives life? There's a careful distinction between the uppercase law of the Lord and the lowercase laws found within God's word. Here, David's referring to the whole of Scripture, which gives life rather than individual commands themselves, which do not give life. The whole of Scripture gives life because in them we learn of God's character and how he is the giver of life. We read of God's love and forgiveness, his justice and peace, his grace and mercy. We read how he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness, yet still executes perfect justice. We read all these things, and the Holy Spirit imparts life to our souls as we have faith in God to save us from our sin and from his wrath against our sin. The law revives the soul as we look to the lawgiver for life, not because life can be found by obedience to the laws alone. Now next in verse 7 of Psalm 19 we read that the testimony of the Lord is sure, reliable or faithful the book of Genesis, was written by Moses. But Moses was not there to experience the things he wrote about. God revealed what the creation of the universe was like, and then Moses wrote it down. This testimony should not be second-guessed or written off as ancient understanding or uninformed. Many people, including some believers even, wrongly conclude that Moses did not record accurate facts in Genesis. So it can be discounted or interpreted as allegory because he had an ancient understanding of science and how the universe works. It doesn't matter if Moses understood modern science or not because Genesis is not Moses' testimony. It's God's testimony. And God is all-knowing and infinite, and his testimony is more sure than even the most credible scientific process known to man. And those who believe God's testimony are made wise because they've been given the absolute truth where, apart from God's revelation, all we can have is speculation. The testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. Now, the word for simple here is just an uninformed person, someone who does not know something. We saw how none of us can claim ignorance of God because he's revealed in creation. But all of us lack understanding apart from God's word when it comes to knowing who God is and what he has done. Next, in verse 8, we read that the precepts of the Lord are right. Who knows what a precept is? A precept is basically a command or a directive, something to do. Like when you're driving too fast And those red and blue lights start flashing in your rearview mirror, right? The precept is that when those lights flash, you pull over. Or you will be made to stop and get a very harsh penalty. The precepts of the Lord are basically his instructions. When such and such happens, respond in this way. These instructions are laid out quite extensively. In the first five books of the Bible, God wants his people to behave a certain way, and he has laid out specific instructions which David says are right, straight, smooth, or level. God's instructions are not intended to be burdensome or difficult. It's our sin and selfishness that makes his instructions undesirable, so we cast them off and find ourselves under the burdensome weight of sin on the rocky and difficult path of selfishness. It sounds like Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> the Bible is full of accounts where people did not follow the instructions of the Lord and they suffered until they obeyed. And these accounts are examples of what not to do To dissuade us from doing likewise. But David says that these instructions from the Lord rejoice the heart. That's because obedience to the Lord is what we were made to do. We were made to worship God by fearing Him and obeying Him. And when we do what we're meant to do, it rejoices the heart. Also in verse 8, David says that the commandment of the Lord is pure. The commandment here is a reference to the specific laws God put in place, similar to his precepts or instructions, but specifically in regard to legality and our righteousness before him. This is what we talked about earlier in Galatians. These laws were not intended to give life, but to show sin as sinful beyond measure and to show that we cannot be righteous before God without his help. That's why David says that it enlightens the eyes. At some point, we all think we can be righteous on our own. And we're blinded by our self-righteousness. Sometimes I even believe that lie. And I have to be reminded of the gospel and enlightened again to my dependence on Christ. Just like the sky declares the glory of God and directs us to his word where we can know him more, the law of the Lord enlightens us to our need for a savior and directs us to depend on God for our salvation. David talks about the fear of the Lord next in verse nine. You may remember we talked about the fear of the Lord a few Sundays ago. The fear of the Lord is the emotional response to knowing God that results in our longing to please him. David says this emotional response is clean or pure. Many times, the fear produced from other things is not pure or clean. It's messy. It causes all kinds of difficulties. (laughs) I saw a picture of a house that had completely collapsed. And the caption on this picture read, I got the spider. (laughs) People can be afraid of many different things. Heights, the dark, water, public speaking. These are the top phobias. Fear of all these things is not pure or clean because being afraid of these things causes difficulties in life. But the fear of the Lord is pure and clean because, again, it's what we were made to do. And it's what we will joyfully continue to do forever. David says that the fear of the Lord endures forever. It will be established to eternity. It will be the joyful, emotional response of worship that we will engage in forever as we spend eternity learning more and more about God and his infinite glory. As verse 9 continues, David says that the rules of the Lord are true. Now, the word rules puts in my mind a list of do's and don'ts, but that's not really what the Hebrew word means. David is talking about the judgments, the ruling of the judge on your account, his verdict on whether you are guilty or not. And all of us will stand before the Lord and be judged. And his judgments are true, firm, trustworthy, constant. All of us have sinned. We're all guilty before the Lord to receive his condemnation. But... He has provided a way to receive forgiveness and be pronounced not guilty through the blood of his son, Jesus, to be accessed by faith. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus yet, I implore you to do so now because there is coming a judgment day. None of us knows how much longer we have. the next section of God's glory in his word has to do with its surpassing value. David compares God's word to gold and honey. I've heard it said that a way to a woman's heart is through sparkly things, and the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. That's a little too narrow-minded, but David knows that wealth is something that nearly everyone desires, and almost everyone has cravings for a particular food at some point. I mean, just think of the cravings pregnant women have, like pickles and ice cream. When my wife was pregnant with our second child, she craved anything that was orange. Anything from orange starburst to mac and cheese. Didn't matter. It just had to be orange. When the pregnant women in our lives have those cravings, well, let's just say we would do well not to hinder them. Gold and honey are two vivid examples of things that people strongly desire. And David says that God's word is better, more desirous, because God's word satisfies where other desires leave us wanting. Both gold and honey are a part of God's creation, which was designed to show God's beauty and graciousness to have made such beautiful and pleasing things for us to enjoy. But God's word is better because it shows us exactly who God is, exactly who we are as needy sinners, and exactly what God did and what we must do to be saved from our sin and from his judgment. David says in verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's word contains both warning against disobedience and the promise of reward for obedience. There are both present and future effects from our response to God's word. Obedience produces all the present and continual blessings that we looked at in verses seven through nine as well as the future promise of eternal life and disobedience. That produces difficulties in the present and the promise of judgment in the future. So we saw David's first depiction of God's glory in creation and his second depiction of God's glory in his word, and now David concludes with God's glory in redemption, Now that first question in verse 12 is a reflexive question. It's like saying, who can can discern his own errors? These are the sins that you don't realize are sin in the moment. There's no way to guard against sin when you don't even know what sin is. That's why David prays to the Lord to intervene. David requests that he be declared innocent or kept blameless from these hidden faults. Ignorance is not a valid excuse to sin. Just because we don't know something is a sin, that doesn't automatically make us innocent. God must declare us innocent, even of these hidden faults, just as much as the sins we are aware of. The sins committed in ignorance are no less sinful than the ones committed in full understanding of their sinfulness. David continues, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. You see, once our sin is no longer hidden, it becomes presumptuous sin if we continue in it. Presumptuous sins are the ones where we know it's sin but we do it anyway. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. We lie to ourselves and say, it's not that bad or God will still forgive me. We may have even convinced ourselves that this is just the way that we are. We don't need to repent because God made me this way. Those are all lies that our heart tells us. David prays that the Lord would not allow these sins to have dominion over him. You see, sin enslaves us, but Jesus has freed us from this enslavement. God gets the glory when we are freed from the dominion of sin because we can't do it without him. A prisoner of sin cannot free himself. A spiritually dead man cannot raise himself to life. God is the one who must free us, who must bring us to life, and he has done so through the blood of his son. David says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, if God has kept you from hidden sins and freed you from the dominion of presumptuous sin, then he's the one who has made you blameless and innocent. It's not of anything that you have done. Our righteousness is always a result of God's grace. But David here is not talking about a one-time transformation to perfect righteousness, If you've placed your faith in Jesus, then when the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. But we're all still growing in our Christ-likeness. None of us is completely blameless and innocent yet. We're being transformed more and more into the likeness of the righteous one until we become like him as we see him in his glory at the resurrection of the dead. Without God's intervention, we're all bound to sin. So too, without the cleansing of the new covenant, our good deeds are tainted and unacceptable to God. David concludes the psalm with these well-known words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Only through the cleansing power of the new covenant in Jesus' blood can any of our thoughts, words, or actions be considered acceptable in God's sight. Imagine for a moment that someone breaks into your house while you're on vacation. They live in your house without your permission while you're gone. This is wrong it's a crime. Now imagine that this person thought, I'll just make up for my crime by cleaning the place up and doing the laundry and stocking the fridge. Will that make up for it? No, no it wouldn't. But that's where we all are apart from the redemption of Jesus. No amount of good we do can change the fact that we're in a state of sin now if that person was given permission to be in the house then they wouldn't be trespassing and the good things they do would be appreciated we have been cleansed by the blood of christ more than that we've been adopted into god's family so that now the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart can be acceptable to God. And David calls God his rock and redeemer. That's a messianic title. The work of Jesus, the Messiah, on the cross is the only thing that will cleanse us from sin and make our words and thoughts acceptable to God. Now, if you remember one point from this sermon, this is it. I'm going to speak slowly, and I'll repeat it so you can write it down if you're taking notes. God's glory is displayed in his creation, which directs us to seek more of his glory In his word and experience his ultimate glory in redemption through faith in Jesus Christ I'll say that again for you God's glory is displayed in his creation which directs us to seek more of his glory in his word and experience his ultimate glory in redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. So when you see God's glory on display in creation, remember that God's word shows more of his glory. And when you read of God's glory in his word, may it drive you, to experience God's glory in the good news of the gospel. He loves you so much that he he gave his own son to redeem you from sin and death, and all you need to do is have faith in Jesus. That's the most glorious truth about God revealed to us. Let's pray father you are so glorious even the sky cannot help but proclaim it all day and all night thank you for showing us your glory in your creation in your word and in redemption through the blood of christ Lord I pray that every time we see your glory it would cause us to want more of you and I pray that as we desire more of you that you would satisfy our desire by showing us more of your glory and reminding us of our redemption I pray that you would use us in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ to remind each other of your glory in the gospel, to spur each other on to love and good works. We know that our good works do not save us, but we desire to do what would please you, because you've saved us through the blood of your Son, Jesus. Father, we also desire to be used by you to reach the people of Benicia, because we know that you desire to be, to be worshipped and you desire all to be saved and that none would perish. Father, please use us to further your kingdom. Give us opportunities to show people your glory in your word and in your gospel that they might believe and receive eternal life. We thank you.